Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hey, you're about to hear a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on July 17th of 2019. Welcome, welcome. Uh, what we're going to do today is something we probably don't do often enough, which is just to spend the whole show talking to an author, uh, and an author who's written a deeply personal book, and a book that's also going to be somewhat recognizable to an awful lot of people who are listening right now. The book is On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong. Uh, it is set most of the time in Hartford and the surrounding areas with uh, flashbacks uh, to Vietnam. Uh, and uh, but we would be I hope we would be having this conversation even if this book were not so drenched in the milieu around us because it's uh, a book that needs to be talked about anyway it's a beautifully written book if you start underlining or dog-earing pages where there's some little phrase or or image that jumps out at you pretty soon the book is going to get physically out of your control it's one of those so uh, Ocean Vong is joining us right now from the studios of New England Public Radio in Amherst Uh, he's the author of poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, for which he won the Whiting Award and the T.S. Eliot Prize, and most recently, as I said before, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, his first novel. His work has appeared in publications including The New Yorker and Harper's. Welcome to our conversation, and I guess sort of welcome back. I'm sitting in Hartford anyway, even if you, you aren't, so welcome back to Hartford. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So let's talk a little bit first about the experience that you are creating. This is the book is written by a narrator, a little dog who I take to be, you know, a pretty close surrogate for you. Uh, and he has addressed the entire book to his mother. It is one long reminiscence and kind of sorting out uh, of things, of rights and wrongs. And it is also very much the story of an immigrant experience in Hartford. So just tell me a little bit about the real biography. How did you come to, to, to be in Hartford? What was your growing up experience like? Yeah, we, we came to Hartford 1990 after immigrating from Vietnam uh, with a stint in a refugee camp. And, you know, I think one of the beautiful things about Hartford is that it's a, a place that was founded and flourished through immigration and the, through the tobacco fields, the tobacco workers coming at first from Eastern Europe and then later on during World War II when the men were off fighting, there was a large crop of Jamaican immigrants who worked the tobacco as well. I think it's a cramped space. New England particularly is such a cramped space. That is an opportunity for me. I saw that as a way to look at the American microcosm, um, you know, when we're shoulder to shoulder with one another. And that's how we figured things out. One thing that I think might not be as evident in the book, the book tells very much the story of living in in a tenement-type apartment on Franklin Avenue Mm -hmm. uh, in Hartford. It's you, your mother, and your grandmother. One part of your actual life was that by, I guess, some geographical uh, um, (laughs) storytelling, you managed to go to school in Glastonbury. Is that right? Yeah, right in the suburbs there. And and we go, you know, I would go in the morning and come back to Hartford. You know, it was such a incredible moment of displacement in the imagination within 20 minutes, your whole world changes. 
the language, the vernacular changes, the geography, the people change. And it was a disorientating experience, but it was an enriching one. It taught me a lot about what it means to inhabit an American body in the American city and, and its repercussions. Right. So it seems as though Hartford itself is disorienting enough. Um, and so there are all these kind of unforgettable scenes. One is uh, a moment where a little dog, uh, your uh, character, he's a boy. He and his mother and his grandmother go into the Seatown uh, butcher section on New Britain Avenue uh, with the goal of getting oxtails. But the little dog's English isn't developed enough. Uh, neither his mother nor his grandmother can convey this. And there's this kind of heartrending moment because they want to get oxtail to make stew for the week. And all they're doing is she's even kind of imitating an ox Mm -hmm. uh, and all that's doing is making these butchers laugh and there's this sense of terrible estrangement that here's this very very vulnerable group of three people who want some pretty inexpensive food that they can't get yeah I think that's an iconic moment for me of what it means to be a, a refugee or a person of color in America which is estrangement but also utter loneliness that if you don't have the language, you are not seen. You are not at the table. That your mouth is what gets you visibility. And I think any child of immigrants going through that realizes that he must now make a commitment to be the translator of his family so that they can be seen and valued as people. And it's a commitment that I think you know all immigrants do and must do And it's part of the American fabric because when that child grows up, he now understands that to live in American space is to move and transgress multiple borders, linguistic, cultural, racial, geographic, and otherwise. And I I look back in those moments and I think, well, my goodness, maybe I've been training all my life to be a writer. <laughs> well, there, yes. Yeah, so there's a way in which you have to step forward and become the translator for your mother, uh, and to a certain degree for your grandmother as well. But there are other moments where you're kind of in a, a similar situation. This is almost mentioned in passing later in the book, but there's a description of you having been placed in the corner at a, uh, in an elementary school class for a timeout, right. and the teacher just forgetting that you were there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this. This is a novel, so many things, you know, I, I invented. I, that's right. many, I, I say you, I'm sorry, I, little dog. But but many yeah. things I've, I've experienced. And this particular moment I did experience, yeah. <laughs> you know, you go in time out and then an hour later, you know, everybody's gone and the teacher said, what are you doing here? Um, but I think that's that's part of the, the uh, inheritance of being an immigrant. You know, uh, your parents tell you to assimilate, to, to be invisible, to don't, uh, uh, you know, don't be the nail that sticks up that must get hammered down um, and f- blend in as much as you can. And sometimes you do it so well that you render yourself invisible. And I think one of the, the tasks and the, the challenges of children in the second generation is that they realize, wait a minute, I want to be seen. I want to be somebody. I don't want to fade away into the background. And then we start to, in a way, betray the lessons our parents teach us in order to embody an American identity that we choose. 
You know, uh, one of the figures that is woven into the conversation of this book is Tiger Woods, which mm-hmm. maybe wouldn't, one wouldn't necessarily expect. And I have to sort of confess my sins here. And so my son is uh, of Mexican ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And so whenever he's been, as a little boy in particular, but as he grew up too, fretting about race, I would say, look, this is all going to be over pretty soon. We're all going to be Tiger Woods pretty soon. We're going to, the whole country is going to intermarry and we're all going to be this you know incredible blend mm-hmm. uh, and and people are going to stop obsessing about race all the time and it's interesting how you use Tiger Woods you kind of use him in a different way I mean he 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 is in, obviously this incredible blend and has this kind of portmanteau word for what he is but right. as you study him and as you plug him into your equation what is he I think Tiger Woods is like many people who come out of war Right, Tiger Woods is a product of war, just like Little Dog's mother is a product of war. You know, his father was a soldier who met uh, a, a, a Thai woman while he was deployed there, and without that war, he wouldn't have his life. And I think, at once, that's tragic, but also it's part of American possibility that if we are more thorough with our histories, we can be taken more thoroughly and more intricately. I think one of the the misfortunes of being a sports idol is that, like many idols in our culture, we don't want them to have a history. We want them to either shine, and if they fail, they're off the stage. They're out of the, the, the limelight, and we ridicule and we shun them. We don't allow them to be human, and we don't allow them to have their own histories. And I think our country has a very precarious and fraught relationship with history. If we look back further enough, we arrive at slavery and Native American genocide. And that's just the distant past. The recent past are full of you know, pitfalls. But I think in order to understand ourselves as a people, in order to garner self-knowledge so that we don't repeat the mistakes our forefathers did, we have to reckon with the historic violence And I think Tiger Woods is a perfect example of the American identity because he is a hero. He's also faulted. He's also, uh, you know, challenged. But he's also rich in where he come from. And his history is as prominent as the history of this country as it relates to war and violence as well as glory. You know, I... This is something that I think Americans struggle to understand or attempt to push away most of the time uh, when you talk about the country. I mean, the, re- the reality is this is a really violent country. It's also been a really violent country. Uh, we've got guns written into our Constitution. There are only two other countries in the world that have even attempted mm-hmm. uh, something like that. And and yes, you know, I mean, everything that happened here happened at the ex- in the early days at the expense of indigenous peoples. And, and then the economy grew through the incredible violence of slavery. But Americans don't think of this as a violent country. In fact, mm-hmm. they probably think of Vietnam as an intrinsically violent country because the only stories they know right. about Vietnam are violent. Uh, but my guess is, you know, even even as Little Dog is a child and he's in a neighborhood where he just kind of hears gunshots all the time, uh, I, I don't think uh, probably America seems like a nonviolent country. Right, right. And I think one of the attempts this book at- – tries to to um, recalibrate is that you know our country is marked by war right we mm-hmm. we literally measure 
our history by war? Is it uh, post-war, pre-war, antebellum, World War II, Vietnam era, Korean era, Iraq era? Um, so we mark ourselves that way. And I think one of the things of uh, the dangers of amnesia, which is to say it's a Vietnam war, it's over there, is that we start to divest America's participation in it. And the repercussions are incredibly fraught because we have veterans who come home and now suffer. And that war doesn't end for them. They still experience that war every single day, 40, 50 years after the fact. And I think this book tries to look at PTSD amongst all people, you know, white folks, Asian-American folks, Vietnamese folks, black and brown folks, is that war is something that seeps into our culture, our vocabulary, and in order for us to find progress and better ourselves as a people, we have to say, how did we get here? Who are we? And one of the ways to answer who we are is to find out what we have done to each other. So um, I think another thing that happens in this novel is that, and I think a lot of very good novels do this, is that we see uh, some unseen cultures, cultures that are mostly unseen to us. Uh, and so uh, lots of people listening to this uh, have uh, had manicures and pedicures, uh, but that experience uh, is one almost theatrical, uh, an experience is staged uh, for people. This book takes us um, kind of backstage and takes us, gives us a chance. So Little Dog's mother, is, is the, that is her job. She does manicures and, and pedicures. And also just maybe to give a sense of the way that you write, If yeah, maybe if you could go to page 79 and maybe pick it up with the second paragraph, give us a little sense of your description of the nail salon. Yeah, absolutely. What I know is that the nail salon is more than a place of work and workshop for beauty. It is also a place where our children are raised, a number of whom, like cousin Victor, will get asthma from years of breathing the noxious fumes into their still-developing lungs. The salon is also a kitchen where, in the back rooms, our women squat on the floor over huge woks that pop and sizzle over electric burners. Cauldrons of pho simmer and steam up the cramped spaces with aromas of cloves, cinnamon, ginger, mint, and cardamom mixing with formaldehyde, tulene, acetone, pine salt, and bleach. A place where folklore, rumors, tall tales, and jokes from the old country are told, expanded, laughter erupting in back rooms the size of rich people's closets, then quickly lulled into an eerie, untouched quiet. It's a makeshift classroom where we arrive fresh off the boat, the plane, the depths, hoping the salon would be a temporary stop until we get on our feet or rather, until our jaws soften around English syllables, bend over workbooks at manicure desk, finishing homework for nighttime ESL classes that cost a quarter of our wages. 
So, and, and this goes on, and we are reminded again also about uh, the, the hardening of, of livers with chemicals and lungs that can no longer breathe w- without swelling. But beyond that, I have to say, you know, the thing that jumps out at me about your writing is there's so much sensory memory, in particular smell, you know, which is, I mean, this book is just full of smells, both pleasant and unpleasant. And often, as we see in that particular paragraph, the pleasant, the smell of the pho and the, the chemicals m- mixing together. And you know, there's it's it's almost like Proust and his Madeleines. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, a you're just constantly calling us uh, into a scene by using sensory detail. Uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit about because I think this book is about memory, and I'm going to say a little bit more about that as we go along. But maybe you can talk about sense memory. Yes, it's it is a, a, about memory, and also the opportunity of the novel is to record a way of life. It's a map of living and thinking and breathing in this case as Americans in the early aughts, in the 90s, working, uh, working class people. And I think I'm, I, I find myself working in the American tradition of Melville and, and Moby Dick. You know, many folks of the New England milieu of 19th century saw whaling as this back, you know, water thing, the underbelly of it. They were on shore. They burned their lamps not knowing exactly the intricacies of where the oil and the blubber comes from. And Melville really went there, and he was thorough in the sensory detail of whaling and the life that that meant for New England, New Americans. And I think that opportunity was always available to me in the novel, particularly in the American novel, as being a record of living and breathing and ultimately what it is to inhabit this space And I think labor is an American icon. You know, our country is founded, whether you're in the coal mines, in the tobacco fields, in the back of the the, the nail salon, labor and capitalism is the legacy of our country and the cost that it has on bodies and lives is monumental. But I think it's a story that we tell less and less, too. I mean, um, yes, Melville uh, tells it. Uh, Whitman uh, tries to tell it. Um, and certainly as we get into some of the, you know, kind of, almost kind of muckraking nonfiction of the mm-hmm. early 20th century, they tell it. But I feel that that's pushed. I mean, one of the remarkable things about this book is we are reading the stories of people who we brush up against and people who actually touch our hands and feet in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're reading stories that we, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're dominated these days by by uh, television and movies that are, for the most part, interest, uh, interested in glamorous lives, more yes. glamorous than our own. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, Toni Morrison, one of my heroes says, I write because I don't see myself out there. I'm I'm writing for black girls, she says, because I don't see any books who hold black girls as a priority. And I think I wanted to write about working class New England life, that it's not just, you know, I didn't know. <laughs> this is a funny thing. I didn't know that c- coming from Connecticut, you know, you, you have a, a, an allusion to you. Um, you know, until I went mm-hmm. to New York. And I said, oh, I'm from Connecticut. And they said, oh, fancy. <laughs> <laughs> you must, they, they thought I had, you know, sweaters around my neck and that I went to private school and owned yachts. And that exists too amongst our milieu. Um, but also it is incredibly diverse, rich, hardworking life. And 
It's life that is founded through challenges, difficulties, but through that, uh, the acquisition of incredible joy and power that these are not just, you know, a romanticized depiction of these folks, that their lives are real and the challenges that they overcame help them realize how important beauty is and therefore the title on earth were briefly gorgeous you know m- many folks would say perhaps in the mainstream media how dare you call these folks beautiful how dare these yellow broken brown bodies in new england how can they be beautiful and one of the most important things you can say as an author because it being an author is your chance to speak and you say well here's why here's why they're beautiful to me um, uh, we're going to need to go to a break here in just a second. I, I just before we leave the subject of nail salons, there is, uh, I, I think maybe I don't know. This, there's so many mind blowing moments in this book. I, I feel hard pressed to single out one, but there's this incredible sequence, um, and I'm wondering whether this one is real or imagined uh, of a woman showing up at the nail salon. I think on a Sunday, kind of the, the right at the beginning of the, the day. There's nobody there but little dog and his mother, and she wants a pet. Pedicure, and it turns out one of her legs is prosthetic. And I won't say much more than that, except that it's, I don't know, it just, it really is one of these suck your breath in kinds of uh, sequences. Did, did that actually happen? Yeah, those, these stories all, you know, it, it, uh, it all exists. You mm. know, I, I'm, I'm not so interested in parsing everything out, yeah. you know, fiction or nonfiction. But, the, you know, you, you, when you realize, you know, I was, I grew up, working in the nail salon, answering the phones for these folks and with, from my mother and my aunts. And you see all walks of life. And, and that moment to me was the, in a way, the pinnacle of what it means to be of service. You know, mm. it's not just, you know, you tend to somebody's feet, but you're tending to their sense of self-worth. Mm-hmm. You're se- tending to their imagined self. And anyone who's got the pedicure or have received one or have performed one knows that it's much more than just cleanliness and beauty. It's about caring for bodies, giving it respect, giving it dignity. And ultimately, this work, this labor is the labor of human dignity. And that's kind of that scene kind of amplifies that for me. Right. I'm not going to even say what happens. It's an amazing scene. We'll just kind of leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But li- we're going to take a break here. The book is uh, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. The author is Ocean Vong. Uh, we'll take a little break. We have so much more to talk about after this. You're listening to a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on July 17th of 2019. All right, we're back. We're talking to Ocean Vong, the novelist and poet. His book on Earth, we're briefly uh, gorgeous, is a buildings buildings Roman, uh, and it is a story of uh, growing up in Hartford. And there are quite a bit of specific references to Mazzucatos and going up to find Ray Allen's house uh, uh, up in the hills. Uh, and but uh, and there, uh, as is the case with any modern buildings Roman, there's sex and drugs and rock and roll, or at least hip hop. Um, uh, but there's also, I think this real meditation on memory, and, and I want to come back to that for just a second, Ocean Vong. Um, there's a way, first of all, one of the things that's often kind of jolting is uh, you're, off, you're often describing this situation of, you know, relative poverty uh, uh, in, in your family, uh, 
and um, then will be jolted from that urban scene by a quote from Roland Barth. Uh, and but the quotes are interesting, and 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 I think kind of get to this question of memory. What what is memory? Is it a record of history? Or is it something different? And I'm going to hone in on one thing, which is uh, Trevor, who emerges mm-hmm. as a character uh, later on. You keep remembering Trevor wearing an army helmet. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you're fairly sure there is no army helmet. There's a moment where a little dog is wrestling with that question. I, here I remember this, my first love and uh, an army helmet, but there isn't one. Right, right. Memory is displacement. It's incredibly costly, and I think that's one of the reasons why we as a country or any peoples um, are incredibly uh, timid and nervous about memory because to remember is to surrender the present. If you remember, you have to let go of your life in the present. So when you remember, you have to choose memories worth remembering, and difficult, challenging memories are hard for anybody. And I think, but that's what... It feels like to be displaced and to have PTSD, which is a lot of these women who raised Little Dog experience and his grandfather from the war, and, and, and Trevor is one of them, is to, to remember is to be displaced in a way. And I, I wanted to write about Trevor as a character because I didn't want the story to to forget about class, that in the midst of our Connecticut River Valley, there are, you know, the, the largest divides. Sure, there are racial divides, there's segregation, but the largest divide that I felt was class, that there were more bonds, you realize, when a white, a poor white boy and a poor yellow boy starts to work alongside each other in this tobacco farm. They realize they're not that far apart. They're much closer than what their geographical structures than what the society or the media tells them they are. And I, I feel, you know, I echo James Baldwin's credo, where he says that if racism is to be solved in the world, it would be solved in the American South, where race is inextricable from the foundation of the, the geographical identity. And I feel that I'm taking that thesis into this book, that what would happen if these two boys who were poor and forgotten and are not supposed to flourish, what happens when they start to live side by side? And if they even dare to love one another, what can they produce? What can they discover? And ultimately, what is the cost? Right. And I think the other thing that they have in common is violence, mm-hmm. um, that uh, they are both from f- families which, because of where they sit uh, in the power chain and the food chain uh, of socioeconomic caste in America, um, they have parents who have been driven beyond the bounds of sanity by this. Um, uh, we, when we first meet Little Dog, we see him being struck repeatedly uh, by his mother. That's really the first thing that happens in, the, in this book is a series of vignettes that involve violence. And it's not for a while that we, it takes a while for us to know that where that comes from is yeah. just the tremendous violence that she has endured, particularly in Vietnam, particularly being half white 
in Vietnam mm-hmm. where she was physically and emotionally tortured right. by by her her own peers. Uh, and you know, Trevor's kind of on the receiving end of violence too, from a, a father with an alcohol problem, a father who's also sitting out in those margins. These mm-hmm. people that I mean, I living in Hartford, living a pretty middle class life here. I, I just these are people that we don't meet very much. We meet them when they show up to help us with something, or we pay them to do something. But this is a guy living out in a yellow trailer, you know, and getting you know, the short end of every possible stick. And he becomes a guy who hits his son. And, and I think maybe you can say a little bit about this, about this way in which violence becomes an inheritance. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, war informs both of these families, Trevor's family and Little Dog's family. You know, Little Dog's uncle fought in Vietnam. Little Dog's grandfather was in Korea. And I think one of the misconceptions Uh, that we see when we're at wars that we think we're just bombing them over there, the perennial them over there. And we don't think that what we're actually doing is that we are causing the trauma to be embedded into our soldiers and that the children of those soldiers will meet the children of the victims in the bombed country and they live side by side. And a a lot of this book questions and ask what is American identity in relation to the refugee. And one of the things that uh, I aim to, to propose is that American identity actually begins when the bombs start to fall for the refugee, not when he steps on American soil. That American foreign policy is the beginning of American identity for the refugee. And they come, and here we are, side by side, you know, what was once former enemies are now two people trying to make a life, falling in love, two boys utterly obliterated by their histories and totally disoriented, trying to find a way to live. And I think that is the hard question that we have to ask as Americans. And the novel is a perfect form for that because you get to slow down and give these characters a chance to talk and to reveal themselves. There is, uh, I think, within the household uh, that we're we're dwelling with in this novel, this kind of also competing levels of reality. The grandmother, Lan, uh, has her own severe mental disturbances mm-hmm. that seem to be some uh, kind of combination of schizophrenia and or dementia and or PTSD. Uh, the mother, her daughter, as we've said, has her own uh, record of being the object of violence, both from her peers and from uh, from a husband. Uh, and, and so Little Dog is, I mean, and as a result, everybody's processing the world reality in a radically different way. Initially, I, the reader, identified the grandmother as the one who has the detachment from reality. But then, I won't have you read it now because I know you read it a lot, but Mm -hmm. there's a moment where um, the mother takes them on this this midnight rescue raid that turns out to be five years kind of out of date, right? There's Mm -hmm. a way in which we suddenly realize, oh, wow, she's living also in a detachment from reality. Right. She's trying to rescue her sister who's with an abusive boyfriend, and she gets there, and she forgets that they've moved away five years ago. And and that displacement of reality is uh, at times, you know, part and parcel with what it means to live in this country. You know, we look at the media, we're bombarded with all of these facts and horrors, and we don't know who we are. We don't know what's real. 
we don't know what facts are true and what's made up anymore. And I think I wanted to present that as a way of thinking that, in fact, we are different in our times and the way we process the world as individuals. And the question is, you know, how do we find joy in that horror of derangement? How do we find a life worth living? And the question that this book asks, because there's plenty of books you know, written by Vietnamese writers and American writers about the Vietnam War and the conflict there, but very few books that question its aftermath. What happens now? What happens when you want to find happiness with that history? We can't choose our histories. We can't even choose our parents. But we can decide to take our lives into our own hands and say, yes, I was a victim of XYZ, but I will not be living in victimhood. And that is the power of the moment and these folks. And I wanted to see how they survived. And they survived through recognizing beauty. The, there's a m moment uh, uh, that I think kind of combines that, you know, combines the stress uh, mm -hmm. and the beauty. There's when uh, Trevor and Little Dog first discover each other sexually and really begin to have fully blown sexual experiences. One of the things that emerges is that there is going to be apparently some residue of violence in those experiences. Mm -hmm. That uh, that uh, that the infliction of a certain amount of pain seems to be in there somewhere, as if mm -hmm. even into this moment uh, of beauty and reciprocal pleasure. It, it, you can't leave your neither one of them can entirely leave entirely leave his past behind yes yes I think that's why the characters in this book laugh so easily you know because they know what's on the other side and one informs the other the challenges and and the the, the ugliness informs the necessity of beauty and joy and laughter and pleasure and one of the things I wanted to write about is queer sex. You know, often we think about, uh, you know, queer lives. We don't get the conversation about the birds and the bees. We don't get that informative, wonderful map towards pleasure from our parents, if we're even allowed in the house after we come out. But for so many queer folks, failure and the failure of our bodies towards pleasure, the, f the, the, the fumbling the awkwardness of queer sex is actually a way to think about our self-knowledge. We fail towards our future. We fail into pleasure. And I wanted to honor that. In our culture, failure is something you swipe away. It's, it's shameful. It's taboo. Get off the stage. Get out of here. But for so many queer folks, failure is the site of innovation. It's the means of self-knowledge. And I wanted sex to come again and again in this book. Often in fiction, sex is a plot point. You happen, and then you move past it, and then maybe you get married or what have you. But I wanted it to stay. I wanted it to come back, to become like weather, which is how it is for so many folks. The internal life, the desire, when we turn it inside out, it's weather, and for so many queer bodies, we experience the world as if there's a hurricane in a mason jar in us. You know, you talked about why those characters laugh. I, I, one of the things that did strike me about this is that so much 
of American middle class, upper middle class, upper class life is lived with the fear of losing something that's been accumulated, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to lose my money. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my reputation. I don't want to. I want to. I don't want to lose all these things that I have. Right. Um, and and there's a way in which the characters in this book. Although I don't think anybody's that I just described would want to change places with them. Mm-hmm. That's already happened. Right. They're not worrying about losing stuff. They, they've they lost essential, most of the things that a person can have. The question is, can they get anything, right? Right, right. And that teaches them to take risks. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have very little to gain, you, you, you take risk towards joy. And there's this one scene where Lon, the grandmother, you know, tr- uh, convince this little dog who's six or seven to climb this fence near a highway to harvest these purple flowers that she doesn't even know the name for. And I think that moment is a small allegory of of what it means to find beauty for yourself when you have so little of it around you, that you have to make it, even if it's just a bunch of dusty, wild flowers behind, you know, next to I-91, you climb over a fence and you get that and you bring it into your home and you make your home beautiful. Now, you know, I wanted to balance that and I didn't want to romanticize that in, in, in a very, you know, Victor Hugo way. So I wanted to balance that with the actual repercussions. And I think one of the, the chapters is this a list of opioid facts and mm. the ramifications of what it means to be in New England there are lovely things about growing up in New England, and one of it is the diversity and the challenges and the joy, the rich, lush summers. Um, but also, you know, we I grew up in a moment where we were inundated by the opioid epidemic before we even had a name for it. it when I was growing up, it was simply heroin, and there was so much shame and taboo. Families would lose their sons and daughters from overdoses and have no funerals. Could you believe that? No funeral. They were so ashamed of it. And now we can pathologize it. But when I was growing up, it was utter slaughter. And I think that's the the parallels that I wanted to draw, that the slaughter of heroin and, and, and Oxycontin in New England was in the same way the slaughter of war. It was just total obliteration of entire communities. Well, I think there's a, an additional parallel in the sense also that, you know, the American side of the Vietnam War was fought by the poor and the people of color. It was not fought by the people of privilege. They didn't go there. And, and there's a way in which the opioid crisis initially, uh, the front lines of that, the early casualties of that were the same groups of people. Uh, and as a result, it was the way Vietnam was for a long time, kind of a hidden war, a war that, you know, people didn't really talk about as affecting them in the same way that maybe World War II or something like that did. And and then when the opioid crisis became more pervasive, when it began to to take down uh, peop- the people around those of us from pr- privilege, it suddenly became a crisis. Yeah, yeah. And it happened right here. And you know, the, the, the opportunity of the novel, again, is to not only mark a way of living and thinking, but to mark history itself. Purdue Pharma began in Stanford, Connecticut. And that's where it was sold, and it went up and down I-91 all the way up to Vermont and New Hampshire, and then down to Appalachia. This is what happened to our country. When we allowed Big Pharma to see citizens as a means to money, (coughs) the way, the same way the military-industrial complex saw Vietnam as a means to money, Um, all of this is 
parallel. And when we start to look at the proximities, we realize that we're not so far apart. We are all pawns in this large machine of capitalism. And the question is, how do we find a future worth living knowing that? We're talking to Ocean Vuong. Uh, the book is On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. We're going to take a break and talk more about this novel when we come back. Although as we take this break, as Trevor uh, and Little Dog discover one another, they discover one another against the backdrop of hip-hop and especially against the backdrop of somebody who's going to be living very soon uh, from the time of their love in a very big house in Avon. That would be 50 Cent. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on July 17th of 2019. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tiger Woods. And now, back to Colin. Right now, we're talking to Ocean Vuong. He's a novelist. His book is On Earth. We're briefly gorgeous. Uh, it's uh, a remarkable book and the kind of book a poet writing a novel would write. There are just so many turns of phrase and interesting ways of describing things that you, you wind up doing a lot of underlining. Um, I I want to ask, uh, since this is uh, a book written uh, in, I think it would be called apostrophic form, that you're talking to somebody else. You're talking to Little Dog, the protagonist, is talking to his mother all the way through. And he doesn't think his mother is going to read this. Uh, I, I'm wondering about you and your mother. Is she likely to read this book or uh, intake it in any way? Um, no, you know, she's proud of, of what I do, um, of, of what I've done. Um, you know, she's proud that she calls me a scholar, you know, um, and, and I think she comes from, a, you know, a rice farm in, in southern Vietnam. And I think, in a way, the work I do is unrecognizable to her. And so she's proud that I'm doing something. She likes to go to my readings and she, she appreciates that people care for what I do. But it's so far from her concerns. You know, she spent 30 years working in nail salons, you know, battered her body. And, and to now to pick up a book, uh, you know, um, it's just too much for her. And she wants to just rest. She told me, you know, I, I just want to rest. You go on. You you do this work. You know, we sacrifice for you to be able to do what you do to follow your dreams. Do it. And and there's a great mercy in that and a great freedom where a mother can say, whatever you do is good enough. Go forth. Right. Uh, and one thing that I want to say, because I, I don't want people to think that this book is this story of unrelieved grimness, because it isn't. And it's a book in which the joy erupts in, in all kinds of places and where two scoops of rice on banana leaves can be, you know, mm -hmm. really uh, an incredible moment of feasting uh, and the way in which people manage to solve their problems, at least for the moment, uh, is often an occasion for, for great joy. Um, in the book, uh, as Little Dark's talking to his mother about who increasingly he is, he does talk about, I think she asks him, you're a writer, what does that mean? And he describes, you know, friends who've died, and, mm -hmm. but also talks about uh, the moment we're in. This is a book 
very explicitly about the immigrant experience in America at a time. I mean, I'm talking to you, you know, two two days after the president tweeted telling uh, members of Congress uh, who have different names and different skin tones from him to go back where they came from and fix up their own crappy countries. Um, It's impossible to get that out of my head as I'm reading this book, and I'm assuming it was impossible to get it out of your head while you were writing it. Absolutely. I mean, the subversive nature of a novel, particularly this novel, is that, yes, it is from one yellow body to another, a son writing to the mother. But after all, because it's a novel, because it is bought and sold, they're on stage, and there's an audience. And as much as it is a letter to a mother, it's a letter to America, I think. It's a it's a letter of, of saying who we are, what's happening to us, including those of us who are on the margins, who are often needs the most protection. Um, we are being pilfered. And, and, and that that is not lost on me. You know, I didn't want to write in a microcosm. I didn't want to write with a myopic gaze. I, I knew that at the end of the day, this will be a book, and that when you're reading it, the, 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 the you, the second person, you know, theoretically is supposed to be this uh, Vietnamese-American woman, but as you read it, you realize that the you is also you, the reader, that the, the, the little dog is speaking directly to you, and he's describing what it means to be a writer of color, to be an immigrant, and and to be battered um, by the opioid epidemic. Right. I, I will say that as I was reading this book, which is that here, I was bracing myself for this description of some annoying guy on the radio saying pretentious things. And I was glad that that didn't happen. But I did feel addressed, though, in the way that you're talking about, right? I think it's impossible to read this book and read this book about the people who are living lives running on tracks parallel to one's own, right. but but very different, much more vulnerable, much more um, living, sometimes pretty literally hand to mouth. What do you do when you can't pay the rent? What are you going to do? What are you going to eat? Um, uh, you on the bus to presumably Glastonbury getting bullied uh, by kids and not really having any kind of recourse. I mean, I really do, I did feel as though you know, wow, should I feel like I should have done something, you know? Um, and and I, I, maybe there is nothing to do except have this conversation. I, I don't know. What what do you want people to do after they read this book? Um, I don't think they have to take anything away from it, at least from me. Um, I, I would hope that they just take more of their own lives, that they see more of themselves in it, just like you described for your own reading, that you saw portions of yourself and the world you recognize. And I think a book is an incredible opportunity because, you know, each one of us has a thumbprint and only one of us possess that. There's only one thumbprint for each individual. But as people, as a personhood, you know, we also have a thumbprint of the self. How do we articulate that? You know, the book and language then is the thumbprint of the mind of the person. And in in a way, this is my interiority, that we might pass these characters, uh, you know, as we will go through about our days, but a book allows us to stop and focus. The book is a doorway. It's a deepening of these lives. And the connectedness is the geograph- geographical reality that f- somebody looks at the Bushnell Theater very different than a way 
another person might look at the same thing. And that is the, the potential of, of a novel, is that we can't turn away, at least not for 242 pages. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to do that in life. We pass somebody within seconds. We might not even think about them, who they are. But the novel allows us to slow down and say, who are you? And ultimately, that I recognize you. I didn't think I would, but I do. Right. I, I feel as though, for the most part, for a whole bunch of different reasons, we don't really want to know each other's stories most of the time. Most of the time, to know somebody else's story would mean to alter my own behavior. To know somebody else's reality would mean that I would have to treat them differently, that I would have to expand the whole calculus uh, of how I interact with them. And so we don't. Um, you know, you might decide to it's help awkward. somebody for, for 10 seconds, but you're not going to listen to their whole story. And maybe that's what fiction can do here. Yeah, it's awkward, right? It's awkward to have this conversation. And then because there's shame, there's guilt, you know, despite of all the the struggles, I'm privileged myself. You know, I'm a professor at UMass. I I have privileges. I have health care. And despite where I've come from, I've gained a certain middle class life. And it's very challenging to negotiate that face to face. You know, language at times fail us in that moment. And I think the novel is a great opportunity where we get to arrive with these folks and these difficult themes on our own terms. We can close the book and come back tomorrow. And the book ultimately becomes a mirror. It's it's seemingly about other people, but it starts to reveal portions of ourselves and we can do it on our own terms and our own times and participate with absolute agency. In the same way I can read Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury about southern white failing aristocracy and see in those characters portions of my own life, which is American failure, American life falling apart in that novel. There's never one yellow face in that book. But I looked at that and I said, I can see what it means and what it feels like to fail when you are supposed to succeed. All right, we have to stop there, but it's a beautiful place to stop. Uh, Ocean Vong, you've written an amazing book. Thanks for this conversation. The book, again, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. Thank uh, you so much, Colin. Yeah, it's a no, pleasure. Thanks for doing this. And let's go out with one of the songs from the book. <laughs> 